0: Art of the Ronin, Volume 1 of the Ronin Trilogy. Written and produced by Travis Hearman. Voice talent by Danielle McCarville and Zeus Legion. For more information, please visit travishearman.com. This novel contains violence and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Chapter 4 Leaf Alone Fluttering Alas, Leaf Alone Fluttering, Floating Down the Wind Anonymous As he walked, the image of the spreading pool of blood around Takanaga's face crept back into his mind over and over, but he pushed it away. He did not dare to dwell upon it too long. The people who were searching for him knew his name. Every village in the province would be looking for a ronin called Kinishi. He thought about what name he would choose, and many swirled through his thoughts, but he could settle on none. Akao padded along beside him as they slogged through the mud of the road; he knew the dog was hungry. Akao's attention was repeatedly drawn toward the forest along the sides of the road. "What is it?" Kinishi asked. "Rain stopped! Rabbits are out now. Look for tender shoots. Going hunting. Very well. He knew the dog could find him easily when his hunt was successful. The sun emerged, warm and strong, and tufts of cloud appeared among the dark crowns of the slender pine trees on the high hilltops above. The sun felt good, warming his flesh, drying his clothes. Another hour of walking, He noticed the puddles on the road dwindling and the soil firming under his feet. The day had just passed noon when a distant scream snatched his attention. He cursed himself for not hearing the sounds of battle sooner, the clash of blades and cries of alarm. A cow would have warned him of danger long before. Perhaps he was growing too reliant on the dog's sharp senses. He needed to start using his own senses again, as he had been taught. He ran down the road toward the sounds, holding his quiver steady to keep the arrows from rattling, slowing to a creep just before the source of the sounds came into view. He placed his pack out of sight behind a tree, marking the location in his memory. Then he slung his almost empty quiver onto his waist, pulled his bowstring out of its watertight wooden box, and strung his bow. Alas, he had only three arrows. He had sold most of them for food. No need to throw himself into someone else's fight, but a warrior should be prepared for anything. He slipped into the underbrush and made his way toward the fight, ducking from bush to bush and tree to tree. The ringing of steel and the cries of men grew sharper as he neared. Kazuko eased back against the wooden wall of the carriage inside. The rhythmic movement of the palanquin lulled her. She was comfortable on the thick cushions inside, screened from the unpleasantness of the world by light cloth curtains covering the sides. And she felt fortunate today for the roof on her palanquin. The morning rain had been terrible, and she pitied her bearers having to slog through the mud. But thankfully, the rain had ceased, and the sky was beginning to brighten. The only sounds were the footsteps of her carriage-bearers outside, the scuffle and splash of their feet on the road, the creak of the wood in time with the bearer's pace, the rustle of the breeze through the treetops high above, the chatter of the birds echoing in the lofty boughs, and the sound of Hatsumi's soft snoring as she napped on the seat opposite her in the palaquin. The smell of the moist, warm breeze wafted through the palaquin's flap helped to dispel Hatsumi's cloying perfume. As much as Kazuko loved her handmaid, the older woman always wore too much perfume. Kazuko peered outside through the flap, widening the gap for a better view. The road was hemmed on both sides by towering forest, and the sun shining down through the leaves seemed to give everything a rich greenish tinge. Spots of sunlight dappled the puddles in the road like scattered golden coins. Through her small gap, she saw one of her samurai bodyguards walking just ahead of the carriage off to the side. He walked straight and tall, stoic and serious, alert. He was an imposing, handsome figure, and she admired the certainty of his stride, the confidence of his gait, even when he was soaked to the skin. His once-proud topknot was now limp and disheveled. She watched him for a while, admiring the smooth movements of his body the pleasant shape of his face, and his fierce, dark eyes. He was so much more of a man than Utah had been. Utah, a servant in the troop barracks, had been her first love, her dangerous little secret. Her father would have been furious if he knew she had let the boy touch her. He was lithe and beautiful, and his kisses had been so tender. She found herself comparing this strong-looking samurai to Utah and there was little for comparison. This man was a warrior. Utah was a poet in peasant's clothes. His cleverness had allowed him to slip surreptitious messages to her in his clumsy, ill-educated peasant's handwriting into her father's house. Where Utah had learned to write, she had no idea. His audacity had shocked her at first, but his sweet words had gained her attention and then warmed her heart. His words had opened the box of her desires, one she did not know she had. She found herself daydreaming about trying her secret knowledge with him, trying the schooling she had received about how to pleasure a husband. They had found a way to be together once, hidden in the stable one afternoon, but she was too nervous and frightened about being discovered to offer more than a few wonderfully fervent kisses. Part of her wanted to know the reality of what it was to be with a man but part of her feared it terribly. Men were such coarse creatures, most of them. One day, she ceased to hear from him. His messages came no more. She had looked for him around the grounds of her father's estate, but he could not be found. She could hardly inquire after him without raising suspicion. The first few weeks she spent fearing something terrible had happened to him, wondering, 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 She tried to ask the servants what had happened to him, but discreetly. All of them claimed to know nothing, but how could that be? Eventually, she had given up, not knowing what else to do. She had missed him terribly for a while, but that had been six months ago. These days, she thought about him wistfully, with a pang of fear that something bad had happened to him, but the pain had passed. If something terrible had happened to him, she would have heard about it. Perhaps his family had been moved to a different part of her father's lands. Perhaps he had left his family to strike off on his own. Perhaps he had fallen in love with another girl, a peasant girl, and ran away to be married. She found herself studying this samurai again, her bodyguard, and imagined for a moment that she had received some poems of love from him. Now would not that be exciting? Then Hatsumi's voice returned her attention to the cramped interior of the carriage. Are we home yet? I must have been napping. Hatsumi yawned widely, exposing her prominent teeth without covering her mouth. Such an impolite gesture would have been unacceptable in public, but here in the confines of their small peliquin and the comfort of their long friendship, Kazuko did not begrudge her. Kazuko smiled. "'Of course we're not home yet. We have several more days of travel.' "'Oh, I know that. But this traveling is so dreary and frightfully boring. We just walk and walk and walk, and we never get anywhere. At least the rain has stopped, I suppose. "'I think it is exciting. The world is such a big place.' And until we went on this journey, I had only ever seen my father's house. Hatsumi sighed and folded her hands in her lap. The world is so big that a person could get lost in it. She shuddered. It's frightening. I miss home. I wish we were there. Everything is still too new and interesting for me to miss home. Perhaps if we were on a much longer journey, I would begin to miss it. It's just so exciting." "'Haven't you enjoyed yourself at all?' "'Lord Sunatomo's garden was quite nice, very beautiful and quiet. "'And the cherry trees? They were wonderful. "'Everything was so wonderful. I could have wept for the beauty. "'Wet sleeves are always fashionable for young ladies. "'It helps to attract husbands, so they say in the court. "'But I'm not a weepy court maiden, Hatsumi.' Kazuko said with a wry smile. "'No. You are a princess of bumpkins, and sometimes you think you are a man,' Hatsumi said with an innocent expression. Kazuko gasped and slapped Hatsumi's leg affectionately. "'I cannot help if father's estate is so far from anywhere important. I'm sure you would rather be the servant of some court concubine, someone with a more wealthy family or higher standing.' Only if you were there, Kazuko. You know I could never leave you. And I also cannot help that father had no other children. Sometimes he thought you were a boy. But one thing is certain. Lord Tsunetomo did not think you were a boy. Kazuko's mouth fell open and she feigned ignorance. What do you mean? Hatsumi giggled. I noticed him looking at you like a hungry tiger. Kazuko felt herself blushing. Yes, so did I. I... I didn't like it. Do you suppose your father is trying to find a husband for you? Kazuko shook her head vigorously. Don't be foolish. You are the foolish one. You are old enough to be married now. You should start paying attention to such things. "'Why do you think Madame Hayako has been tutoring you in the ways of being a lady? "'Before you know it, you will be too old to find a husband, like me,' Kazuko protested. "'But you're not too old. You'll find a husband some day. "'Hatsumi sighed wistfully. "'I hope so, but I'm sure you'll be married long before me. "'No man ever notices me when you are nearby.' I will talk to father about matching you with one of his men. Hatsumi smiled. So, you want to be my matchmaker, eh? Very well. You can be my matchmaker. Oh, it will be so much fun, and I'll be sure to find you a strong, handsome husband. Hatsumi patted Kazuko's hand. I'm sure you will, Kazuko. And don't forget, he must be rich. Kazuko giggled and looked back outside through her small opening in the flap at the bushi guarding the palaquin. I do not know if any of these men are married. Captain Mitsubashi is quite handsome. Kazuko leaned back out of view as the Yojimbo she had been watching, a man named Harata, turned to glance at her as if he had heard part of the conversation. Her ears grew hot with a flush. Then she said, Why do you think Lord Tsunetomo never married? I heard that he was married once, long ago, but his wife died from a fever. Oh, that's terrible. But why did he not get married again? He is too old now. He is near retirement age. So unfortunate that a man of his status has no children. I do not... Hatsumi was cut off by a sharp scream of pain from outside. The peliquin lurched. Hatsumi nearly fell out of it as the front corner fell to the ground. Kazuko heard the shouts of her bodyguards, and the other shouts from further away along with a few vulgar taunts. The palanquin lurched again and fell to the ground as if all eight bearers had dropped it together. A chorus of more screams in front and behind. Another voice, louder than all the others as deep and penetrating as thunder, boomed in the air, laughing with malicious glee. She peered out past the flap and saw three of her bodyguards, swords drawn, backing up from someone she could not see, looking upward, fear showing on their usually grim faces. More of that terrible laughter. Then the palaquin jumped into the air as if it had been kicked by a giant. Kazuko's head crashed into the ceiling. The palanquin came down on its side and her breath was driven out of her in a whoosh as she slammed down onto the curtain with the ground beneath. Her vision hazed. Hatsumi moaned in pain. Kazuko closed her eyes and imagined that if she hoped hard enough, she would wake up and find this was all just a horrible dream. Hatsumi yelped with surprise, then screamed, a scream that quickly receded. Kazuko opened her eyes again and gasped when she saw that Hatsumi was gone, and the side flap of the carriage now hung open above her. The carriage heaved again, throwing her against the ceiling, and again her head struck a wall of the carriage, casting her into blackness. When Kenishi reached the sources of the noises, he saw an overturned palanquin lying in the middle of the road, surrounded by the bleeding corpses of its eight bearers. A brutal melee swirled around the fallen palanquin. Four samurai defended the palanquin against eight bandits. Their faces were grim and hard as they struggled to keep the bandits at bay. All of them bled from numerous small wounds, blood soaking the lips of the neat gashes in the fine silken folds of their clothes. One of them clutched vainly at a slash in his abdomen. His strength was flagging. The bandits laughed and taunted them as they fought, but their snarling faces held no true mirth, unshaven, twisted, and ugly. Their clothes were rough and ragged, except for a few instances where one of them wore a fine obi, or tunic, they had doubtless stolen from unfortunate victims like these. Kanishi glanced down at his own clothes, and suddenly felt the weight of the coins. The bandits attacked with swords and spears, one with a sickle in each hand, and one with a strange weapon that Kanishi could only describe as a sword blade attached to the end of a one-ken long pole. The blade was different from that of a katana or tachi, heavier and with more curvature near the point, but straighter along the length. Kanishi would feel no qualms about killing hardened criminals such as these. A bandit with a katana charged into close quarters with one of the samurai, driving him back a step. The samurai stumbled and the muscular bandit with the unusual sword pole lunged into the opening with the long reach of his weapon, slashing with a powerful downward stroke with all the leverage of the pole and body. The curved sheen of steel split the hapless samurai in a diagonal cut from shoulder to hip. In a spray of crimson gore, the cleft body fell to the earth. A wounded samurai summoned a surge of strength to batter one of the bandit's spears aside, then lunged in and slashed across the bandit's wrist. Half of the bandit's spear fell to the ground with a single hand and wrist still clutching the severed shaft. The bandit reeled back, howling in pain and fear, watching his blood spurting from the stump of his forearm, his scream fading as he passed out. Another agonized shriek pierced the air, and Kanishi's gaze snapped toward the source. A woman's scream, just off the path, The leaves of a bush shook with rhythmic violence and a deep, cruel laugh followed the scream like the rush of a bull. A scowl hardened Kenishi's brow, and he reached for an arrow. He stood to his full height, now only half hidden by the tree. With unhurried speed, he knocked the arrow, raised the bow to point skyward, lowered the point of the arrow, and drew with a single motion. He released a heartbeat later allowing the arrow to find its own way. The arrow hissed as it flew and sank deep between the shoulder blades of one of the bandit's swordsmen. The bandit lurched forward and fell on his face, clutching at the out-of-reach shaft. The remaining six bandits shuffled their position to put the samurai between them and Kanishi's position. The samurai followed, staying between the bandits and the carriage. Kanishi knocked another arrow, drew, and fired. A spearman fell to the ground, convulsing around the feathered shaft protruding from his belly just above the groin. As one, the remaining bandits decided that they were finished playing with the three samurai. They rushed forward and impaled two of them on their spears. The one remaining samurai shouted a brave cry and slashed open the ribcage of one of the spearmen with a precise diagonal cut. One samurai now faced four bandits. Two of the bandits charged Kanishi's position, the one with the sickles and the one with the strange sword pole. He saw them coming for him in a strange slow motion, as if he watched them from the bottomless well of emptiness between instants. With what seemed to Kanishi no particular hurry, he readied another arrow and fired— sending the pole-arm wielder face down in the dust with an arrow through his heart. Then the sickle-wielder reached him. The bandit growled and slashed with his wickedly curved blades. Kenishi dashed his bow into the man's face and leapt aside. The well of emptiness was gone, like a dried-up pool, leaving him scrambling for his life. He dodged around the tree, and the sickle man hacked through the space he had just occupied, one of his weapons lodged in the bark of the tree. Kanishi thrust himself closer before the man could jerk it free and smashed his left elbow into the bandit's teeth. As the bandit reeled backwards in pain, Kanishi drew his sword and slashed with a single motion. The man gulped, and his eyes bulged as he staggered backward his hands clawing at the neat slit in his belly that bared his entrails to the sun goddess. Wasting no time, kenichi spun to see how the last samurai fared. The last two bandits lay on the ground, their limbs jerking to the music of death. The samurai sank to his knees with the blood-smeared point of a spear protruding from his back just below the ribcage. His sword sagged to the earth, and his chin sank to his chest. Kanishi ran toward the dying warrior and knelt before him. The samurai's half-lidded eyes opened, and his chin rose just enough to gaze up into Kenishi's face. You are not one of them? No, never, Kanishi said. Then I beg of you, save the lady. My strength is gone. I fear I cannot... The warrior's eyes closed. His torso sagged against the shaft of the spear and remained propped in its kneeling position as his final breath escaped. Deep laughter rumbled like an avalanche out of the bushes beside the road, but no scream followed this time. Kanishi crept toward the bushes, but a soft sound from the overturned carriage turned him back around. He grasped the top of the carriage and set it upright. A young woman tumbled through the curtain and sprawled on the ground at his feet. Her beauty struck him like a bolt from the thunder god. Even the ripening bump on her forehead could not mar the porcelain perfection of her features. A soft moan escaped her lips, and she stirred like a fallen leaf caressed by the wind. Her eyelids fluttered. Are you a fox? he said in amazement. Her eyes opened and looked up at him, wide and glimmering. Her voice was breathless and weak. A fox? A deep voice boomed behind him.
0: What the hell is going on here? Where are all my men?
1: Kanishi spun, and a gasp escaped him. He stepped backward at the sight of what stood before him and almost stumbled over the young woman's body.
0: Who the hell are you?
1: It roared. The creature stood. Head, shoulders, and breast above him, its upper body looming above the roadside thicket. With skin the color of congealed blood, its rippling muscles stood out like ropes on its thick, gnarled limbs, barrel-like chest and hunched shoulders. Its head had been carved from pure nightmare, glaring down at Kanishi with two beady yellow eyes set in deep, close-set sockets. Three yellowish-brown horns crowned its thick, low brow, each the length of a hand. A wild shock of coal-black hair was tied into an unruly caricature of a samurai's topknot. Broad, brutish features and thick, flabby lips twisted into a snarl that bared cracked, yellowed tusks. In one of its three-fingered hands, it gripped a tremendous studded iron club caked with bits of bloody flesh and hair it stalked out of the bushes. Standing out straight before the beast, thrusting aside its meager linen loincloth, was its monstrous member the size of Kanishi's forearm. Jizo, preserve me, Kanishi whispered.
0: Who the hell are you?
1: The creature's voice sent shivers down Kanishi's spine and raised the hairs on the nape of his neck, as if thunder itself were given voice. He glanced toward the sound of a gasp. The young woman cringed away from the creature, backing against the palaquin. The oni laughed again.
0: I've saved the sweetest for last, I see.
1: It leered down at her, its yellow eyes blazing with brutal lust. No, Kenishi shouted, stepping between them to face the oni, raising his sword into the high stance. You won't touch her. I'll kill her before you touch her.
0: It matters not to me whether she is alive or dead, only that she is warm.
1: The oni laughed again. The oni reached down toward one of the dead samurai at its feet and wrenched an arm free of its socket, raised the dripping limb to his mouth, tore off a great chunk of raw flesh with its tusks and gulped it down.
0: Now I must wash it down. Your blood will do, whelp.
1: Kanishi clenched his teeth against his rising gorge. Back to hell with you, demon. Then he glanced down at the young woman. Run, he hissed. She looked up at him. Run, he shouted at her. She scrambled to her feet and dashed up the road as quickly as her heavy garments would allow. The oni watched her go with a look of irritated disappointment.
0: Now I must catch her again. Damn you, whelp! I'll peel your hide in strips and use your skull as a bowl.
1: The creature crossed the distance between them in four great strides and swung its iron club with startling speed. Kanishi darted aside, and the iron club splintered the carriage like kindling. A three-toed foot lashed out and plowed into Kanishi's belly, sending him flying. Agony exploded in his guts and stars flashed in his vision, but on the downward half of his arc, he spotted the upturned point of a broken spear in the path of his landing. He managed to twist in mid-air to extend his hands under him to avoid the spear point by a finger's breadth. He hit the dirt and rolled to his feet, gasping for breath, his belly a blazing ball of hot pain.
0: Stupid monkey! I am the demon bandit Hakamodare. I am the shogun of robbers. When I was a man, I was the most powerful bandit chieftain in a hundred years. No one could stand against me then. How can you stand against me now that I am a demon?
1: Kanishi tried to compose himself enough to seek the emptiness. He tried to steady his breathing, but the sight of the creature whipped his heart into a thunderous gallop. The oni was upon him again in two strides, and the tetsubo whooshed downward like a falling boulder. Kanishi threw himself backward, and the club thumped into the earth with a spray of wet earth. The impact of the blow pulsed through his hands and feet. The size of the club and length of the creature's arm gave it a great advantage of reach over Kanishi and his sword. The oni swung the club again. This time through the space Kanishi's head had occupied the shaved moment before he dropped into a crouch. The Oni spouted a torrent of vile curses as Kanishi dodged and darted out of reach. Then Kanishi noticed a slim white figure dart behind the creature from the right. He purposefully glanced to the Oni's left, away from the location of the approaching figure. The creature paused its attack long enough to follow his glance and at that moment a shrill battle cry pierced the air. Kanishi saw the flash of steel and heard a sound like a blade chopping into wet wood. The oni grunted a puzzled curse, and its right leg collapsed. The slim white shape twirled away. It was the young woman, wielding the strange sword pole. The weapon spun in her grasp, and she assumed a stance that placed the blade of her weapon between herself and the creature. Point down, razor edge up, poised for a gutting upward swipe.
0: My leg!
1: The creature roared.
0: You little bitch. I should have had you first.
1: Can you pierce me with your shaft hacked off? Her words came out in a scream, shrill and half-crazed by fear and loathing. Can you chase me with your legs hamstrung?
0: My flesh will heal quickly enough.
1: The creature's sneer bared even more of its crimson-stained yellow teeth.
0: Come nearer. I want to taste yours.
1: She had shed her heavy quilted outer robes to allow more freedom of movement, and now wore only the light silk undergarments. Her beauty was even more breathtaking as she gripped the sword pole with well-trained ease. Her small breasts heaved against the silk. Kanishi swallowed the lump forming in his throat and returned his attention to the oni. The creature rested on its knee, holding its tetsubo ready. Its head was now level with Kanishi's. He glanced at the young woman and began to circle the oni, remaining well out of reach of its weapon. Her fierce, dark eyes fixed on him for an instant, and then she followed his example and circled the other direction. Then, almost as if they read each other's thoughts, they attacked as one from opposite directions. As it swatted at Kanishi with its club, the young woman's sword pull with its longer reach swept up and sliced deep through the side of the creature's throat. The creature gurgled like a man struck a mortal wound, but Kanishi was astonished to see no blood flow from the gash. Instead, a thick black ichor-like warm tar welled from a cut that would have been fatal to any human. A moment later, a nauseating stench struck Kanishi like a punch in the nose, as if its blood was the essence of death and decay. The oni covered the wound with his free hand to staunch the sluggish flow and swatted at the young woman. She danced back out of harm's way, and Kanishi seized his opportunity. He raised silver crane high and slashed with all his strength, focusing his spirit, sword, and body into the blow with a sharp battle cry. The Oni's head tumbled from its shoulders into the dirt and bobbled away. Kanishi lowered his weapon. A gasp escaped from the young woman. The Oni's body did not fall. Its free hand groped for the fallen head. The head snarled and burbled and mouthed tusks, gnashing, yellow eyes bulging. Kanishi kicked the head away from the fumbling body. The tetsubo swung at him, missing widely. The young woman stepped behind the body, and with a single slash severed the hand gripping the iron club, which fell to the earth with a heavy thump. What should we do? she asked. It won't die. Burn it, Kanishi said, his face taunt with the effort of self-control. Use my palaquin for a fire. Out of reach of the Oni's body, he speared the head with the point of his sword and dragged it about twenty paces from the body. He shook the head off his blade and ran back toward the body. His lips were pulled into a tight line, cinching down his revulsion. He began to hack limbs and portions from the body of the Oni, and the monstrous shape thrashed in agony at every stroke "'spewing black ichor in all directions. "'Hatsumi!' the young woman cried. "'Where is Hatsumi?' "'Kanishi paused in his gruesome work "'and pointed toward the underbrush. "'I think there is a woman over there in the bushes.' "'Her large eyes widened to the size of rice bowls, "'glistening with fresh tears, "'and she dashed toward the bushes, "'forcing her way into the foliage. "'A wail of grief erupted from the foliage,' but he concentrated on the task at hand. Silver Crane's hilt was strangely warm in his grip. Was it tingling? He dared not stop. Before long, the Oni's huge form had been reduced to a quivering, twitching mass of a black oozing demon meat and entrails that writhed like a nest of angry eels. Then he turned to the ruined carriage and began breaking and chopping it apart, throwing the pieces of wood, bamboo, "'and cloth onto the unspeakable mass. "'The young woman's voice rose from the foliage. "'Please help me!' "'With a glance at the demon's remains, "'Kanishi approached the dense bushes. "'A few paces within he caught sight through the leaves "'of the young woman's white undergarments, "'and he stepped into the narrow area "'that had been mashed down by the oni's activities. "'Another woman lay on her back, "'her face a mask of blood.' Her once-beautiful robes were ripped and stained with blood and dirt and grass. The young woman had torn a large section from her own undergarments and folded it into a bandage that she had placed over the older woman's groin. She's alive! Carry her out there! Kanishi obeyed. He moved beside the other woman, slipped his arms under her and carried her onto the road. A plaintive moan escaped her as he eased her down. Will she live? the younger woman asked. I don't know, Kanishi said. I didn't see what it did to her. She has been raped and defiled. We must find a priest to purify her. If she dies in this polluted state, she will return as a hungry ghost. We've both touched the Oni's blood. He looked at the black spatters on his arms, on his clothes. It's all over us maybe we can find a priest who could help. He raised his hand abruptly and lowered his voice, cocking his head. Wait here a moment. He stood, listening. He held his breath for several long moments. Then he began to walk down the middle of the road. Then, after perhaps forty paces, he lunged toward the underbrush. A surprised yelp burst from the bushes as his finger closed around a handful of clothing and he dragged the wearer into view. A woodsman tumbled onto the road, spilling his load of chopped wood from the rack tied to his back. The woodsman was old and thin, wisps of gray hair flying in all directions as he blubbered for mercy. Who are you? Kenishi shouted. I am Dongai from Uchida Village. Please, do not hurt me. I meant no harm. The old woodsman cringed away, protecting his face with his arms. Is Uchida Village that way? He thumbed over his shoulder toward the village he had encountered the previous morning. Yes, brave sir. How long have you been watching? I saw everything. I hid when I heard the bandits coming. Your presence here is lucky, woodsman. Your wood might help us destroy the demon. Yes, brave sir, of course. I will help you. Then let's take your wood up the road. He softened his manner to try to put the terrified woodsman at ease. Yes, brave sir. The woodsman removed the rack on his back, set it upright, and Kanishi helped him gather his scattered cords of wood. With the wood loaded into the rack, Kanishi and the woodsman walked back up the road. The young woman had fashioned a makeshift pillow for the older woman's head from scraps of cloth and cushion from the carriage. The older woman's robes were stained with blood, but none of her limbs appeared broken, and she had no outwardly grievous wounds. The young woman stood and faced him bowing. Thank you very much, brave warrior, for saving us. Facing such a creature was most courageous. He said nothing, merely looking at her. Her phrasing had been so polite and humble that he hardly understood what she said. She straightened, and their eyes met. She was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, and he could not look away. Finally, she looked at the ground, and her cheeks flushed. She said, Um, did you ask me before if I was a fox? It seemed like a dream. I did. Why? Foxes sometimes disguise themselves as beautiful women so they can play tricks on people. Sometimes they lead men to their doom. Why would you think I was a fox? He looked away, and his ears burned. An image of Haru's devious smile flashed in his mind. I must destroy the demon. He turned his back and took a step toward the demon's remains. Then he stopped and looked at her again. His gaze lingered over the portions of petal-soft flesh revealed by her torn clothing, her lips, the curve of her neck, and the dark depths of her sparkling eyes. Immediately, she seemed small and vulnerable, embarrassed over her near-nakedness, and she tried to gather her thin clothing to cover herself. He turned his back and heard her trotting up the road to retrieve her clothing. Guy, Kanishi said, stack your wood on that pile of meat there, and don't touch the stuff. Fear not, sir, I won't touch anything. The woodsman shrugged his burden onto the ground. Ah, it's still moving, and bits of it are growing back together. The old man staggered backward, his eyes bulging, his face twisted into a mask of terror. Several pieces of flesh had rejoined themselves, gathered together by the groping tentacles of the Oni's black, ropey entrails. "'Leave your wood and step back.' The old man scrambled back, stopping several paces away. Kenishi arranged the wood on the vile mass of black and red flesh, Then he searched the area for any scattered bits of demon flesh and flicked the morsels he found onto the mound with one of the spears. Before long, Kazuko returned wearing her beautiful quilted robes of heavy silk, looking once again like a proper, noble lady. The woodsman prostrated himself before her as she approached, and she thanked him for his help. Kanishi gathered kindling and dry grass from the underbrush and lit it with his flint and steel. Soon the fire was crackling, growing, spreading through the cloth and dry bamboo. His lips drew into a taut line as he watched the fire, and his brow furrowed at the sizzle and pop of burning meat. A terrible stench rose from the fire with a column of oily yellow smoke. The flames changed from yellow-orange to a sickening green. If his stomach had not been empty, Kanishi may have lost his gorge at the stench, like death and decay, but a thousand times worse, like a maggot-infested barrel of fish left to rot in the sun. The fire blazed with searing heat, and the demon's flesh crackled and blackened, curled and split. He approached the demon's living head, Its eyes blazed with feral yellow fire, spewing hatred at him as its teeth snapped in impotent rage. But Kanishi also sensed fear and pain there, too. He impaled it again on one of the broken spears, returned to the fire, and thrust the severed head deep into the flames. Even as the flesh charred and peeled away, and the eyes sizzled and burst, the creature glared at him with utter hatred. "'and mouthed breathless curses. "'The teeth blackened, "'the lolling black tongue curled into a strip of stiff leather, "'the blockish jaw clenching tighter with the crisping flesh. "'When he was satisfied that the flames were doing their work, "'he asked the horror-stricken woodsman to cut two saplings, "'each two ken long and about as thick as his wrist. "'The woodsman hurried into the forest.' Before long, the sound of chopping echoed among the trees. The young woman had wiped away the caked blood from the other's face. A large wad of blood-drenched bandages lay nearby. The injured woman's face was pale, where not marred by swelling purple bruises. The young woman said, We must find a way to move her. She is bleeding badly. We must find a healer. Can you carry her? I could, but I know a better way we must move quickly. This place is unclean. I'm afraid the spirits here have been angered by the oni, and its blood has defiled the earth. Has she awakened yet? Not yet. Will she? I don't know. Oh, this is horrible. Who is she? She is my servant, Hatsumi. Her eyes and cheeks glistened with tears, tiny green lights from the unclean fire flickering in the sliding droplets. Her family has served mine for generations. She has been like my older sister since I was a child. I don't know how I would live without her. Let's move away from all this blood. She nodded. He picked up Hatsumi's limp form and carried her about 50 paces down the road, with the young woman hovering close behind. He arranged Hatsumi on the ground he retrieved his traveling pack and his bow. He said, You're good with that sword pole. It is a naginata, she said. You do my father a great compliment. He taught me. This one is for the battlefield, larger than what I am accustomed to using. The blade is heavier. I've never seen one before. She looked surprised. They are most often used in battle. I've never seen a battle, and I've never seen a girl who can fight like you. My father had no sons, so he taught me how to use the Naginata. Where do you come from? Far to the north of here. You're a ronin. He stiffened. Yes. That is an unfortunate thing. Masterless samurai aren't well regarded in this province. There has been much trouble with robbers. He gestured toward the dead bandits back up the road. I understand why. Having no master must be difficult. He nodded once. Her words caused him discomfort. Forgive my rudeness. I'm certain a warrior as skilled as you can find service with a worthy lord. He nodded again once. Then an idea darted behind her eyes. In return for your aid, I will speak to my father. Perhaps he will offer you service. The lump in his throat returned. I would be in your debt, lady, he said, trying to keep his voice even and controlled. But I do not even know your name, she said. Until this moment, he had been quite happy to dispense with names. My name is... A suppressed bolt of panic shot through him. What should he say? Somehow, all of his desire to lie and give himself a new name disappeared when she looked at him. His mind was empty. My name is Kenishi. I am Nishimuta no Kazuko. I am pleased to meet you. Kenishi's breath seized up. She was a Nishimuta. "'the same clan as the constable he had killed. "'Should he have lied and given a false name? "'The entire area was doubtless looking for a ronin with his name. "'My father is lord of this province,' Kazuko said. "'Your family is powerful.' "'Not really. We are a small clan, "'but some of my father's cousins are close to the shogunate.' "'She spoke as if it were sometimes a great burden.' The bushes parted, and the woodsman reappeared, dragging two fresh-cut wooden poles. Kanishi took them and placed them side by side, sitting down beside them. As Kazuko and the woodsman watched him with curiosity, he took his bedroll, a large needle, and a ball of hemp string and began sewing his bedroll lengthwise to one of the poles. Kazuko said, You are very resourceful. "'A man learns many things to survive without a roof over his head.' "'Her lovely eyes widened. "'You've never had a home? "'Is a ronin's life so harsh?' "'He smiled grimly and shrugged. "'I have survived this long.' "'Didn't your parents give you an inheritance?' "'I don't remember my parents. "'They died when I was very small. "'My teacher told me my father had been a famous samurai.' but would not tell me his name. He said, I must make my own name. Who raised you? My teacher. He finished with one side of the stretcher he was making and started on the other side. He must have been a kind and generous man. Kanishi snorted with amusement. Not really. Did I say something funny? He did not answer her. She stiffened. She was not accustomed to being ignored. He concentrated on his task. Then, as if she could take the silence no longer, she blurted, How did your parents die? You ask a lot of questions. I'm sorry. Does it trouble you to talk about it? He said nothing, trying to concentrate on his sewing. An impatient shifting of weight by the woodsman reminded Kanishi of his presence. Dungai. You may return to your village. Please tell the town grave diggers what happened here. These men need a proper funeral, or they might come to haunt this road. Yes, sir. I'll go now and tell them. I hope they have returned. Yesterday they went out looking for a ronin bandit. Kazuko said, Thank you, sir, for your help. We could not have destroyed the oni without you. A bit of color returned to the old man's previously pale cheeks, and he smiled, a grin missing several teeth, and bowed deeply. It has been my pleasure to serve. Good luck to you all. The woodsman again bowed to both of them, and hurried up the road as quickly as his spindly old legs would carry him. Kazuko watched the woodsmen totter back up the road, and her gaze could not avoid the sickly green flames and the noxious yellow smoke of the Oni's pyre. Her gaze drifted over the human wreckage covering the road, the dark pools of congealing blood soaking the dirt, mixing with the rain puddles. A tremendous heaviness suddenly fell upon her body, and her clothes were made of stones, weighing down her limbs. Tears burned her eyes, cooling as they trickled down her cheeks. She looked down at Hatsumi, lying unconscious in the dirt, wounded and defiled, soaked with blood, and sobs rose in her breasts. Less than an hour ago, she could not have imagined that such horror and pain existed in all the world, and now it threatened to drag her down into an unimaginable hell of sadness and despair. "'Poor Hatsumi,' she whispered. "'The pressure of the sobs built, threatening to explode. "'Then she glanced at the ronin sitting on the ground, "'concentrating on his sewing. "'She must not break down in front of this rude stranger. "'He observed no courtesies, and worst of all, he ignored her. "'She must be strong.' "'As she spoke, she hoped he did not hear the quavering in her voice.' I must get the swords of my bodyguards. Their families deserve to have them. They fought with honor and courage. He was hunched over his work, absorbed, but nodded his head. As you please. She turned and walked back up the road toward the scene of the melee. The stench of the Oni's pyre was almost overpowering giving her something else to concentrate on so she could push aside her own weakness. She covered her mouth and nose with her thick sleeve, but even though the stench was screened out, the air felt oily and putrid against her skin. She felt unclean now, and she wanted a bath more than anything. The corpses of her carriage-bearers lay sprawled in the dirt, riddled with arrows, twisted and fallen into unnatural positions, their glazed eyes staring into eternity. She looked at their faces, seeing some of them for the first time. So often her servants were just faceless peasants, part of her life, yet invisible and taken for granted, like the wind. These poor men had not stood a chance in the ambush. She picked her way among the puddles of blood. Her hands were shaking now, and her knees felt weak. The endless hours of practice and drill with the Naginata had not prepared her for a fight against a live, deadly adversary, and she had never imagined she would meet a demon face to face. Was this what some warriors called the thrill of combat, and the naked, empty feeling that remained when the thrill was gone? Using the Naginata had felt so natural. She understood now why the grueling hours of practice had been necessary. They had prepared her for the moment when all that practice had been vital, and she had not had to think. She had just acted. Thinking back about the moments of the fight, she marveled at how it had felt so effortless, so instinctive. Every moment was etched in clear detail in her memory. The horror of it, the sickening feeling in her belly, and the final elation at the Oni's defeat. She clasped her hands to stop them from shaking, then lifted the hem of her robes to keep them out of the blood. So much blood! It had gushed and poured from the savaged bodies. She hesitated to touch the dead flesh for fear of becoming polluted by death. Then she realized that she was already polluted from her fight with the oni. She already needed purification, so she knelt beside the corpse and pried the sword from bloody, clenched fingers. Then she untied the scabbard from his obi, wiped the blade on his clothing, and returned the blade to the scabbard. She repeated this with the other three samurai, except for one whose scabbard had been slashed neatly into two pieces. This blade she wrapped in the soiled remnants of one of the curtains from her palaquin. By the time she was finished with her grim task, she had gained control of her emotions. She carried the swords to where Kanishi still toiled, then went back to retrieve the Naginata. The weapon's heft and deadly balance helped bolster her strength and resolve, as if the steel of the blade lent her some of its strength and made her feel less helpless and vulnerable. She wiped the tears from her face. Then she jumped and nearly dropped the Naginata as a blood-curdling scream seemed to tear a hole in the air itself, echoing among the trees and up the sun-dappled road.
0: Thank you for listening to Heart of the Ronin, Volume 1 of the Ronin Trilogy by Travis Hearman. Volume 2, Sword of the Ronin, and Volume 3, Spirit of the Ronin are available now on your favorite audiobook platform. Please visit TravisHearman.com, look me up on social media, or send me an email. I would love to hear what you think about the story.